Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. Our text for today is the chapter. Our specific text is verse 15. And I call this message as we continue to work our way through the book of Revelation, Ready for a Thief. Because in this chapter where there is given the final denouement of history, there is a single verse. Here are the plagues which God is going to pour out on the earth in John's vision at the last time, the end of that tribulation time. And in the middle of that list of plagues, between the sixth and the seventh, literally, there is a word of the resurrected living Christ. And what he says is in verse 15. Behold, I am come as a thief. Blessed, and this is one of seven beatitudes in the book. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now that's a fascinating picture. The picture is of one who has gone to sleep. Now you must remember that the Middle Eastern home of John's day was normally, for common people, one room. It was the living room and the kitchen and the bedroom and the den and the TV room and the washroom for the washer and dryer all in one. And when the family went to bed, they literally rolled out their pallets and slept on the floor. And if a thief came and you wanted to chase that thief since you couldn't dial 911, you needed to keep your clothes close to the bed so you could quickly put on your robe and chase the thief. Or else the thief might come and catch you without your clothes nearby. And as you chased him, you would be terribly exposed, if you understand what I mean. And in that picture, Jesus says, that is what I like to see cultivated in the life of every single person in the community of faith. It's called watchfulness. The importance of living watchfully. And watchfulness is the capacity of awareness. It is sensitivity to see and understand what is going on around you or around me. Some people are very socially watchful. Others don't get the slightest hint. Some people are physically very watchful. I don't know about you, but I have been watching a little basketball and uh, praying that somebody who had tickets to the tournament wouldn't be able to go, might get the flu, and call me. Is that wrong to pray for somebody who will get the flu? And they might call me and say, would you like to have tickets? Unfortunately, that's a prayer God left alone. But in any event, as I watch basketball, you notice some players are always at the ball. They're always around the ball. 
and others never get it. They just never, they're, they're never there. They're always on the periphery. There are some folks who are physically watchful. So by the Lord's warning, he is saying, I want you to understand that not only in the tribulation period, but in every age, I highly value watchfulness. The spiritual capacity to be aware and to be sensitive and to be able to understand what is going on in the world and in the lives of people around you. Now let's outline this verse for those of you, uh, those pastor's pals who are taking notes. Uh, there are in verse 15 four things he is saying by this. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he first who watches. We must be watching. Be watching. For I will come like a thief and rain these plagues upon the earth. So don't be surprised when I come. Because I warned you I'm coming as a thief. When I was a boy about uh, six years of age, mom and dad had to go somewhere on New Year's Eve night. And my sister Neoma was about 11 or 12 and she was watching us. And uh, we were sitting at the table playing dominoes. Does anybody play dominoes anymore except in Texas when they play 46? Dominoes. And as we were playing dominoes, I was facing an exterior window. It was late because we were staying up till mom and dad came home. And as I was figuring out whether six plus six would equal 18 and I would make any points if it would come to an even five, if you have ever played dominoes, you'll understand. If not, go home and try it. Uh, suddenly, at the window was a thief who pressed his face against that window and flattened his nose. Now, if you don't think that'll put the fear of God in you, you'll be sitting there with your 12-year-old sister babysitting six kids, and, uh, and suddenly you're looking at this window, and there's a strange face with its nose and eyes and mouth pressed flat against the window. I, I think he, he could have come in and taken anything in the house he'd have wanted right then. But I'll never, ever forget that. I can still see that nose pressing against the face. And I remember the next day that I, I told mom, she went out and washed the outside of that window to get his nose off our window. <laughs> be watching. I'm coming like a thief. Don't be surprised. Second thing he says, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. Be alert. Be alert. See, be very careful to stay alert. Don't be put to sleep by the events going on in the world around you. Thirdly, uh, blessed is he who watches, keeps his garments, lest he walk naked. Be prepared. Keep your clothes with you, right beside you where you can get them on quickly if you must chase the thief. Fourth, and thirdly, don't get too comfortable, he is saying. Fourth, be dressed. 
be dressed. Don't be naked. Don't be exposed. And he makes the spiritual analogy that when we are not watching, alert, prepared, dressed, we are spiritually susceptible. We are spiritually open to all the deception of Satan that is described in this chapter. Now, in the chapter itself, God uses the language of natural disaster to explain the picture of his final destruction of the world system. This is the language of natural disaster. He uses the creation over which he is sovereign Lord to explain the picture of his final destruction of the world system, which is described in chapter 16. And there are seven plagues. Look at verse 1. I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls. The Greek word is fiale. You remember the saucers with the large lips. The bowls, the old English says vials, but we have a completely different picture of a vial. It's a bowl. It's even a saucer bowl. Pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth. Now, in, in the others, in the trumpets and in the seals, everything is very gradual, it appears. But here the language is very clear. Everything is sudden and quick. It is ha protos, it is the first. Then ha deuteros, it is the second. And the language is crisp and clear. These plagues at the end of the tribulation come rapidly upon the earth. And not a thing which the medical or technical world knows about can do much to hold back these seven last plagues. And the first came, and what was the first plague? These remind you of the plagues of Egypt, the ten plagues. Do you remember those? We'll look at them in a moment. When God was trying to persuade Pharaoh to let the children of Israel leave the land in which they'd been enslaved, he sent plagues on the land. And uh, they didn't release Pharaoh's heart. He wouldn't let the people go. But now watch the plagues. The first is the plague of ugly sores. The first poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast. I think it's funny. It's almost like God has a sense of humor. He says, all right, you were so anxious to take the mark of the beast and bow down to the world system and the world religion, the false prophet, the false beast. I'll put my mark on you, and my mark will be a loathsome, ugly, foul sore. I have no idea what form that will take, but I've had some sores that were hard to seal, uh, hard to heal, and I can imagine how in the world it would be for your body, like Job, to be covered with those kinds of boils and sores. Imagine. Every time you took a shower, you rubbed over 37 ugly, open, foul, bleeding, putrid sores. I don't know how to make it sound any worse than that, what I just did. The second plague, verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. The second plague was the, the sea was turned to blood. The sea was turned to blood. Plague number three, verse four. The third angel 
poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So now not only the sea, but the springs and the fountains of the earth, which draw from the aquifer, I suppose, underneath, all became blood, just like what happened in Pharaoh's day. And when the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood, the, the angel of the waters, probably the same angel, gave a, a great song of praise. You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. Judgment always reflects the righteousness of God. God would not be a just God if he did not judge the opposite of justice. It would not be a moral God if he did not judge immorality. It would not be a fair God if there was not a time when in justice and righteousness he, quote, evened the score or exhibited justice on the earth. For, verse 6, they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. If they wanted blood, God gave it to them. That's what he's saying. And it is their just due, because God is a just God. And I heard another from the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, we've talked a lot about this, and so I won't, I won't uh, linger here long. But there it is again. You can always count on God making your wrongs right. It's one of the reasons why I believe in eternal judgment and final judgment. Because there has to be a time when a holy God makes the wrongs of this earth right. Nobody ever said this world was always fair. Early on, when I was in the fourth grade and kissed the first girl I ever kissed and she slapped my face. In the fourth grade, I can, I'll never forget her name, Patty Lou Peterson, I learned that the world was not fair. I mean, I'd seen some other boys do that, and they got away with it, and I didn't, and got slapped. And I figured out the world was not fair early on. But God makes it so. Then, verse 4, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given him to scorch men with fire. In this symbolic language, the fourth plague is the plague of the sun. And the scorching sun. Now you can, I could stop at every one of these and preach a whole message. I could speculate that the ozone layer has been destroyed by the environmental crises of our day. And I could speculate that the sun now comes through and destroys everything and burns us all up. But you know what? It really doesn't make any difference to me how it happens. I just accept that God says he's going to send a plague and bring judgment on this wicked system in the world. The fifth one is found, but now, note verse 9, I'll come back to that. They were scorched with great heat, and as a result, they blasphemed the name of God. Then verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now remember, the beast in the last two chapters was the political ruler who sort of takes control of the whole world. This is why people get afraid sometimes of a one-world government. They fear it because it tends to point towards the coming of a false uh, political leader, who, the Antichrist, who will rule over the world 
and control it from a central position. And his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. Now the sixth plague, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now at the battle of Armageddon, the Bible teaches there'll be a great conflagration. The nations of the earth will gather, uh, will gather, but the kings of the east will gather, and the river Euphrates will be dried up so that the armies can march to the battle of Armageddon. And so the plague is the drying up of the great river Euphrates, which fertilizes so much of that territory of the world. And then comes the battle of Armageddon, verse 14. There are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God. And they gather them together to in the place that is called in the Hebrew Armageddon. And so there's the battle of Armageddon. In the middle of this, they're getting ready for this great battle. Then the seventh plague, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven saying, it is done. And the plague is, verse 18, there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now, perhaps we ought to have someone from California give a testimony as to the effect of a great earthquake. I remember one Wednesday night several years ago, we had RAs in that CAC building over there. And how many of you remember this? There was an earthquake in Western North Carolina, and we shook, and I felt the whole building shake. I, I remember it put the fear of God in me, and it wasn't anything compared with what they have in California. But that's the seventh plague. And when that happened, verse 19, the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon, no doubt in John's mind, by Babylon he meant the oppressive Roman system persecuting the church in his day, was remembered before God and God gave her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, the mountains were not found. And when that happened, the great earthquake, there was... Hail from heaven and every hailstone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. Hundred pound hailstones. Now, I don't know what exactly he means by that. And I don't know, but I can't imagine a hundred pound hailstone. But it will be a terrible rain of destruction at the end of time. Now... This is a little bit different type message because I'm trying to, to handle that chapter. But I want you to see two things now that are extremely important as to why watchfulness is essential in our lives. What did Satan do to the people of this tribulation period in order to, uh, to bring them to the place where they rejected everything God did in their lives? And there were two things that are in this chapter. Here they are. The first thing, he sent evil, lying spirits to deceive them. And secondly, he hardened their hearts in verse 21. 
I want us to look at those in the time we have remaining. I believe that's true in every age. I believe in every single age. In our day today, Satan seeks to deceive the population by evil, lying spirits. And the answer to this is we must learn to discern deception. Evil, lying spirits. Now go back to this in verse 13. In the great symbolic imagery of apocalyptic literature, here's what John explains. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs who live in the slime, unclean, coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Have any of you ever been frog gigging? Anybody? How many have ever been frog gigging? Frog gigging. You know where you go to get the frogs. Boy, if you, have, if you haven't been frog gigging, I mean, you missed a great blessing. Somebody take those who haven't been frog gigging. Is it legal anymore? It is? It is still legal? Okay. Uh, I, we got a game warden somewhere. Where's, where's Larry at? But anyway, uh, I'll have to find out. I better check that out. But here the evil in the imagery, they are evil spirits like frogs. Now watch. They come out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, the great political leader, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the leader of the world church. So in the imagery, you have three things happening. Satan sets up a mental picture around the world that deceives everybody, and the Antichrist supports it, and the false prophet who has the whole ear of the world supports that, and they deceive the people with lying tongues. Do you remember when Paul wrote in Thessalonians about the Antichrist? He said that the people would believe the lie. Here is the lie of all lies from the Antichrist, the triumvirate of evil, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false religious leader. And they go out, verse 14, to the kings of the earth and of the whole world, and because of Satan's lies and deception, they are willing to gather for that battle of Armageddon and fight and seek to destroy the people of God through whom God wants to demonstrate His faithful promise and His faithful covenant. Now that doesn't seem very powerful to you, but that is powerful to me. Hold your hand here and go back to 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. Do you remember that when... Ahab was ready to go against the people of Ramoth Gilead in an ill-timed battle. And a spirit came before the Lord, reminiscent of Satan coming before the Lord in Job's case. The spirit came forward in verse 21 of 1 Kings 22 and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, how will you do it? In what way? He said... This is the evil spirit. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And, and uh, Zedadiah, who headed up the prophets, almost 400 of them, told Ahab, go on and go. And the prophet deceived the king and Ahab went to battle and lost his life, and that's the way God brought judgment on Ahab. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is not impossible to understand today. I, I don't understand 
many things which the world accepts as given. Sometimes issues of politically correct speech blow my mind. I wonder how can the world be deceived this way? And the answer is that in every age, Satan sends out evil, lying spirits to deceive. And he does it in the lives of young people. And he does it in the lives of, of uh, adults. And he does it in the lives of senior adults. Take this whole sex education business. If sex education were the key to abstinence, we've had 24 years of more sex. My kids used to come home and say, sex, 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 sex. If I hear anything more about sex, I'm going to die. Your kids ever say that? <laughs> if sex education, if truth alone would bring about abstinence, why don't we have it? I'll tell you why. Satan sends out evil spirits to deceive the whole world. And in spite of all that we hear, we still don't practice because there are evil lying spirits. What Paul calls in Corinthians strongholds of thought in which he has deceived the world into generally accepted thinking. At least three of those that we all get caught up with are these. First, everybody is doing it. Everybody is doing it. That's a lie from the devil. Everybody is not doing it. And, and, and uh, concomitant with that is the whole world can't be wrong. Why are you going against the grain, courts? The whole world can't be wrong. Is everybody out of step but you? No, but if I'm the only one and I believe it's truth, I'm still going to stand up for it. The second way he deceives the world today is it feels right. Our educational system often trains us to think that way. I hear parents. I hear parents in this church say this to their children. If it feels good to you, go ahead and do it. Man, if I had done everything that felt good, I'd be in central prison for the rest of my life. Do you understand that? The feeling good process does not make it right. And the third evil, deceptive way of Satan in our world today is you have a right to do it. You have a right to do it. man left his wife at age 47, and he said to me, I was afraid I was missing out on something in life. I've been married to this woman too long, and I know there's got to be something else out there, and so I've got a right to leave her because I have a right to be happy and I have a right to explore the world and I have a right to find out what I'm missing. You got a right to keep your promise to that woman. Amen. You got a right to keep your promise to that man. Lying spirits sent out to the world to deceive the world in the tribulation period. And friend, they are loose today. Learn to discern deception. Learn to discern the lies of Satan. And you say, well, how do I do that? Well, one way you do it is turn over here to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And notice what John warns us about. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, 
but test the spirits. This is what makes watchfulness. This is what makes awareness spiritually, be spiritually aware, he's saying. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of who? Who is it? This is the spirit of Antichrist. There it is. Teach your children to discern. People say, well, you evangelicals who believe the Bible, you're closed-minded. Oh, man, I'm the most open-minded person in the world. I've seen so much and heard so much, I hardly believe anybody. I'm not surprised at what anybody can do. I want to test everybody's spirit. I believe that we ought to have an inquiring mind that opens up and asks the question, is this of God? Test the idea. Test the philosophy. Test the spirit. Test the habit. Test the moral statement. Test the sermon. Test the lesson. Test the news. Learn to discern deception. Now, one way that he does it here is through lying mouths in verse 13 of chapter 16. But the second way he deceives us is through lying wonders. Look at verse 14. They are spirits of demons performing, the Greek word is semion. It is signs, great miracles. You know, folks, just because I could snap my fingers and make a serpent come out here doesn't mean I'm of God. Don't believe that every miracle proves God. The devil can do miracles. Did you know that? He has limited power, but the devil can do miracles. Now hold your hand here and go back to Exodus chapter 7. Do you remember when uh, Moses went before Pharaoh? And uh, the first plague, there's, there's blood. And uh, in verse 20 of Exodus 7, Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. He lifted up his rod, struck the waters in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh, the sight of his servants. All the waters that were in the river turned to blood. Look at verse 22. The magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. So Pharaoh's magicians lifted up their rod and turned the rivers to blood. And Pharaoh said, big deal. God's not much. And by the way, it happened with a second plague in chapter 8, verse 6, the plague of frogs. Imagine going outside and having 432 frogs jump on you today. Frogs everywhere. Now. Or the, how about the lice? The third one was lice down in verse 16. Stretch out your rod and I'll send lice all over. <laughs> lice all over. And you know what happened? In verse 18, the, enchantment, the magicians of Pharaoh worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. And the signs and miracles of Pharaoh's false magicians ceased. But Pharaoh still did not believe God. You may ask for some great thing. Don't identify every great miracle as of God. Test the miracles. Because even the devil sometimes has the power to do miracles. Well, what helps us to discern deception? Can I suggest three things to you? First, spiritual commitment will always give you clear sight. An absolute surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. 
whole commitment to the cause. You know, if uh, you watch some of these commentators in the basketball games, you can tell whether they're wholly committed to a team or not. Uh, you can tell. Here's a team that's going hot and blowing hot, and the commentator says, you know, if they could just get it together. And you wonder, where's this guy coming from? Uh, because, see, they're committed somewhere else. When you're committed somewhere else, it affects the way you see everything. When your commitment is over here, it affects the way you see and understand things. And so it is spiritually. When I am wholly sold out to Christ, it affects the way I see things. And I'm better able to see clearly whether something is of God and is of the truth. Secondly, moral purity will help your capacity to discern deception. Under the pure, Paul said to Titus, all things are pure. And unto the defiled, all things are defiled. Once you carry the baggage of sin around, everything else is affected. That's why a highly critical person is just reflecting the guilt that he can't deal with or she can't deal with. Somebody who's always putting you down, always saying something negative about somebody else, is just revealing something about themselves. They've never dealt with their own guilt. So everybody else has got to come down on their level. Under the pure, all things are pure. Under the defiled, all things are defiled. And one of the ways to maintain clear capacity to see spiritual deception is through moral purity in your life. And the third way is through biblical integrity. Match everything to the Word of God. Test the spirits against the Word of God. Does, I don't care whether there's a miracle, test the truth against the Word of God. Is this God's will? I must close. The second and last thing that I would say about this chapter is that there's the hardness of the heart that he used to deceive the people. We must not only learn to discern deception, we must learn to deal with hardness. Now, I want you to notice something in this chapter. Chapter 16, verse 9, when after the fourth plague, men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory in spite of the great heat. Verse 11. In spite of the fifth plague, when the throne of the beast was put into darkness, the plague of darkness, Pastor Spouse, verse 11, they still blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Verse 21. A great hail from heaven fell upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Now, there's one of the most heartbreaking statements in all the Word of God. After God had done all of these things to bring the world to repentance, in each case, they went right on rejecting the goodness of God and blasphemed the name of the Lord. How do you react it's one of the most difficult things, I think, in life. Some of you women have experienced this. You've poured yourself out on an altar of servanthood for a man, and he has returned evil for your goodness. Have you ever had a friend like that? You did and did and did for them, and they returned evil for your good? And do you remember how frustrated you felt? Do you understand that's the way God feels about the world? 
and he pours out judgment. The purpose of judgment is to bring the world to repentance and instead the world responds by blaspheming God. No wonder the Bible says, my spirit will not always strive with man. No wonder the scripture says in Romans 2, 4, 5, and 6, and oh man, do you not see that the goodness of God is to lead you to repentance? And do you not see that when you refuse the goodness of God, the opportunity for repentance, that you're treasuring up wrath against yourself? You're just building up judgment every time you refuse. What happened? I think the hearts of the world grew harder and harder and harder. Somebody asked me the other day, I don't understand why the Old Testament says that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And the answer is, the Lord hardened his heart by his goodness. He gave him so many opportunities to repent, and every time he gave him an opportunity, he said no, and each time his heart got harder and harder and harder. And there's only one way for us to face this. Teach your children, teach yourselves, practice this. If we're not only we're going to learn to, to uh, discern deception, but we're going to learn to deal with hardness in our lives. There are three things I want to recommend. First, practice constant confession. Constant confession is the antidote for hardness. Don't ever let yourself get to the place where it's been more than a week that you confessed anything to anybody. I tease, I like to say no to at least one thing every day. You want to know something? It's a good habit of the spiritual life to practice confessing something to somebody or to God every single day. It's the only way you can avoid getting a hard heart. Secondly, not only confession, but practicing repentance. Now, there's a difference in repentance and confession. Confession is speaking the word. Repentance is making a life change in direction, a change of mind and a change of direction of the life. And the third way to deal with hardness is measuring the mirror. Keep looking in the word of God. Keep testing yourself against the Word. You know, every time I go to buy a suit, I think about this. And I walk into that men's store, and I stand in front of that, those six-paneled mirrors, and at one glance, you can see yourself all the way around. You can see your love handles. Do you see those? That's not a love handle. That's the microphone right there. But when you walk into that, you think, how could I be such a slob? I thought I looked pretty good till I looked in the mirror. Every time I go into a men's store, I go through this. It's an agonizing thing. So I just don't buy any more new suits. <laughs> but you know, that's the task of the Christian to avoid hardness of the heart. I don't just get into the Word of God to get knowledge. I don't just want to read the Bible so I can say, I've got Bible information. I don't want to just get into the Word of God to be fed so I can grow and learn some new technique in order to overcome my frustration in a fit of anger. 
I went into the Word of God so that I can see myself as I really am. James says, the law is a what? What does it say? It's a mirror to show us imperfections so we don't get hard hearts. When you lose the capacity for a tear to drop out of your eye when this choir sings, you're getting a hard heart. When you lose the capacity to come and kneel before a holy God and say, oh God, here is my heart all over again. Let me renew my vow with you. Some of you haven't made a public decision in 17 years. And when you lose that, you're getting a hard heart. Beware, that's what happened in the tribulation time. So I must have constant confession, be practicing repentance, and measuring myself in the mirror to keep from having a hard heart. Christ calls us clearly to you today. If you've never been a Christian, if you've never made a public declaration of your faith, he said, behold, I come as a thief. Turn your life over to me so you can be watchful and ready. Learn to deal with deception. Learn to deal with hardness. Let's stand in prayer. Father, accept the sacrifice of our hearts all over again today. Mold us and shape us because we have been in your house to worship. Help us not to be afraid of the world. You've never called us to be isolated from it. You've called us to be engaged with the world. But make us watchful because you're coming as a thief. Make our minds to be hungry for truth like a basketball player is hungry to get his hands on that ball. This morning, speak to those who have gotten away from you and out of fellowship with you and help them to renew that fellowship. Speak to those who need to acknowledge Christ as Lord of their lives. In Jesus' name. Thank you.